Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There is a story for everyone here, because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybooks together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Let me ask you a few important questions. Do you believe that we are able to find ultimate balance in today's age of what would seem would look like to be overindulgence? And are you someone that is struggling at the moment or has struggled with an addiction of some kind, whether that is behavioral related or whether it's substance related? I, for one, am someone who has not shied away from sharing the deep, dark demons that highlighted, I guess, my own addiction with pornography and then more later in life with exercise, which then led to eating disorders. And these are some demons that I wrestle with on a daily basis to keep suppressed. My guest today is a very special guest, in fact. She is someone that I have loved uh, diving into a lot of her work. Her publications are quite incredible. She can be seen on the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. I watched it twice. The first time I watched it, freaked me the heck out, but it's so true. Uh, You just watch it and you think you know that this stuff is happening, but when you do actually watch it and you understand it more, it's scary. So I watched it a second time and it was still scary, uh, even more so with the kind of things that are going on in our world today with social media and the grasp for our attention. But my guest is Professor Anna Lemke. Now, for those of you that don't know who she is, she's a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine, and she's the chief of the Stanford Addiction Medical or Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. She's a clinician scholar. She has published more than 100 peer review papers, book chapters, and commentaries. She's also a New York Times bestselling author. She sits on the board of several state and national addiction-focused organizations. She has testified before various committees in the United States, House of Representatives, and the Senate. She keeps an active speaking calendar and maintains a thriving clinical practice. 
In 2016, she published Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop, which highlighted the New York Times, uh, was highlighted by the New York Times, sorry, as one of the top five books to read to understand the opioid epidemic, which I, this was something that interested me quite a bit uh, after watching the, the doc, or the series, I should say, called Dope Sick over on Hulu, which you can go and check that out for yourself. Or if you're in Australia, it's on Disney Plus. But Dr. Lemke recently appeared on the Netflix documentary, which I was just talking about before, The Social Dilemma, an unvarnished look at the impact of social media on our lives. And she has a new book, which we do discuss a lot about on today's conversation, which is Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. I think you guys are really going to get a lot out of this conversation. We do cover areas uh, that Dr. Anna hasn't really covered in many conversations that she has, uh, which was a lot of fun to actually get to those areas and learn so much about them. Uh, so if you do get something from this, guys, please share it around to all your friends and family. I highly recommend that you guys go and get a copy of her book, Dopamine Nation. And if you are interested in the other book, Drug Dealer MD, then it's, trust me, it's a fascinating read and deep dive into the opioid crisis if that so interests you. But I would greatly appreciate it if you guys, before you go, leave a rating and review over an Apple podcast and make sure to subscribe as well. If you guys want to take charge of your own health and use uh, some great organic supplements, then I highly recommend Mary Ruth Organic Supplements. You can get 15% off if you go to maryruthorganics.com and use discount code J15, that is J15 at checkout for any Mary Ruth Organic product on the site, which I think is incredible. It is time for you guys to upgrade your health with the right kind of health products products and supplements as well. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me into the story box as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other than Dr. Anna Lemke. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, Always nice to reach across to um, folks in Australia. Really exciting. Thank you so much for making the time. Now, I didn't read out that you also another author of another book called Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop, uh, which talks about the opioid crisis. I, I spoke with someone not that long ago. It was part of Dope Sick, the, the TV show that was uh, written by Beth Macy. And that was another show that informed me a lot. But your book has been described as being one of the top five books, I believe it is, that does talk about the opioid crisis, which does align with addiction. Um, so I, I, I do want to, I just wanted to highlight that for my audience before we dive yeah, great. into Thank everything you. else. Uh, but my very first question for you before, before we unbox even more of your amazing story is what does success look like for you? Mm, love it. So success for me is helping people one one person at a time, really. Why is that success for you? When was the moment that you realized that it was success? Has it been this gradual thing over time in your life or was there more of a catalyst moment somewhere? No, I think I've always had, well, it could be that I, I'm not good at delaying gratification. And so what I like about 
you know, giving one-on-one is the sense of being able to make that human connection, which is really powerful and especially important for me. Um, And to feel like, you know, my being fully present for the other person can positively impact their lives. I, I don't know. That's just something from very early on, I intuitively felt to be at the heart of, you know, a meaning and purpose in life and particularly where I might be able to be of service. Mm. You mentioned delayed gratification, which is something that I am interested in. I'm probably not the best at it. (laughs) (laughs) I want things now. But for those people that don't know what delayed gratification is, I think it's kind of somehow self-explanatory in the name, but are we able to dive a little bit further into it, the scientific evidence that supports what uh, delayed gratification is and does for us? Well, delayed gratification is just that ability to effortfully invest um, in something when we know that the payout is going to be weeks, months, or even years hence, as opposed to immediate gratification where we reach out our hand and essentially get that reward exactly in that moment. Um, And there is a lot of interesting science um, looking at delayed gratification and what, what modifies it. There's something called the indifference curve, um, which behavioral economists have used to sort of try to figure out what are the factors that allow an individual to delay gratification or not. Um, They use interesting experimental paradigms like asking people, would you rather have a candy bar today or two candy bars a week from now? And then modulating that based on people who are hungrier or people who have a history of addiction. Mm. Um, All those things are just interesting things to look at. Like what are the sort of, what's the subtle parameters that allow us to delay our uh, reward experience or not? Why is it that some people or more or less uh, are people good at delayed gratification? Does it depend on the person, whether or not they've got an addiction or what are the the sort of characteristics that make someone good at delayed gratification compared to someone that's not? Well, it's a great question. Some of it is probably innate. So there's the famous Stanford marshmallow experiment where they took kids between the ages of about three and five, put them in a room with no toys, nothing but a table and a plate of a single marshmallow or cookie on the table and said to the child, um, you're going to be waiting in this room for the next 15 minutes. If you can wait the full 15 minutes without eating the marshmallow, then when the researcher comes back, you will get a second marshmallow. And what they found was that um, the older the child, the more likely the child was able to wait the full 15 minutes um, and not eat the marshmallow and get a second marshmallow. So clearly it's, it's age dependent. It has something to do with the maturation of the, you know, the, our gray matter areas, probably our prefrontal cortex plays a huge role here. Um, and that's the gray matter area, right, right behind our eyeballs. Um, but they also found that there were inter-individual differences that, that some people were just better. Some children were just better than others at, at delaying gratification. And then they are, did interesting things to change up the parameter. Like for example, they did a modification of that experiment where um, in one group, they told the, ch- the children, um, you know, the same, the same instructions, except this time they said, if, 
if you want a researcher to come back earlier, you just ring this bell and the researcher will come back. And in half of the group, when the child rang the bell, if the child rang the bell, the researcher came back. And in the other half of the group, the researcher didn't come back. In other words, mm -hmm. the child was lied to. And that was a fascinating uh, sort of permutation on the original Stanford marshmallow experiment because the children who were lied to were more likely to eat the marshmallow and less able to wait the full 15 minutes, introducing a very fascinating interpersonal aspect to the ability to delay gratification, which is to say, if you live in an environment where people don't keep their word, you might be more prone to developing addiction. And on and on these various permutations with lots and lots of data showing that once people have an active addiction, whether it's to nicotine or opioids or what have you, they're less likely to delay gratification for almost any reward, whether it's a monetary reward or a food reward or what have you, and that it's in fact a dose-dependent phenomenon. So for example, people who smoke more cigarettes on any given day are even less likely to be able to wait for future rewards than people who smoke fewer cigarettes. So this is very fascinating, suggesting something that neuroscience has already shown is true, which is that, um, that the process of becoming addicted actually changes our brain on a neurophysiologic level um, and those brain changes make it harder for us to wait for future rewards. This is fascinating research. I mean, I remember the marshmallow study and thinking, I wouldn't want to be that kid because I definitely <laughs> <laughs> one of those kids. Give me the two right now <laughs> sort of thing. So, sweet tooth. Yeah. I mean, what I didn't mention is that the, probably the most interesting part of that study was that they followed the, those kids then through time and into their teens mm -hmm. and 20s. And what their data showed was that the kids who were better able to delay gratification were more likely to go to college, were more likely to get good SAT scores, were, you know, were more likely to have certain forms of outward success, suggesting that that ability to delay gratification is highly adaptive in the modern world. Now, I just want to say that that might not be that adaptive a trait in another kind of world, right, in another environment, for example, in an environment where we're at like subsistence survival level. In that environment, you know, people who can sit on their hands might not be the best, you know, might not have a better survival chance. Maybe it's those people who are just like impulsively reacting to stimuli in their environment. Those are the people who are gonna save the day. So I always like to say that because I never like to just like pathologize certain traits without thinking of them contextually. I'm glad you brought that up because it made me start thinking about, okay, so if they did follow those same kids later on in life, did they notice that the ones that were, I guess, better at delayed gratification, did they notice that they still ended up with an addiction later on in life of some degree or the ones that uh, say, you know, weren't so great at it, they ended up with a worse off addiction later on in life. Did you, did they notice that at all? Great question. So the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment wasn't actually looking at addiction parameters per se. So I don't think they got those data. But I think it's it's a reasonable it's reasonable to sort of you know puncture some holes into what appears to be a an emerging coherent theory that if you are innately less likely to delay gratification, you are more likely to get addicted. Which is to just rephrase that that's not necessarily the case. 
Um, so some of the people that I know in my in my own personal life and also among my patients who are really, really good at delaying gratification are some of the most severely addicted people. So although we do tend and there are data to show that if you are impulsive at baseline, meaning less able to put a pause between your desire or impulse to do something and actually doing it, you have, there are good data now showing that you're more likely to become addicted. But I will say that there are lots and lots of people who have great impulse control, who are probably some of the most addicted people you'll ever meet. Well, it's interesting that you should say that because, you know, I did struggle with, I guess you could say, delayed gratification for most of my life. Became a very much, I want this sort of now. And I ended up with some pretty nasty addictions. Firstly, mm. I'll just go right there with you. First addiction, 12 years old, addicted to pornography for yeah. quite some time. And then that also led to an eating disorder, addiction to mm. exercise. But it was interesting because like my addiction to pornography that I did not want to delay at all. If I had the urge, I just watch it and I noticed the the repercussions. I felt a lot of shame afterwards, you, you name it. And then similar, similarly, I didn't feel like any any of that with exercise though. So it was like the addiction depended on, like I, I noticed with, with my addiction to exercise, right. I could wait a little bit, if that makes sense at all. Like yeah. I didn't mm -hmm. have that same urge, but for porn, it was a completely different scenario. And I'm, I'm just curious, like for, for different addictions, like it's just the same, like it's a weird phenomenon <laughs> or is that my brain just yeah. going a million miles an hour here? No, no. I mean, first of all, thank you for your honesty and transparency. I think that's always a great gift. Um, and interestingly, your addictions are uh, what we call process or behavioral addictions with maybe the exception of, of food, which is to say you got addicted to a behavior rather than really a substance. And your substance happened to be food, which is something that you know, we need to survive. So, and I, I think that that these kinds of addictions are potentially, first, first of all, pornography addiction is one of the most shameful addictions out there today. Um, but these process addictions, including to exercise, um, especially since exercise tends to be socially lauded and celebrated, um, can really, you know, go, go under the radar yeah. and hard to detect. In, in order to sort of pick apart, you know, your experiential um, let's say your experience of your pornography addiction versus your exercise addiction. I think first, what we have to do is really talk about um, what happens in the brain as people get addicted. And maybe I can cover that really quickly in order to make the distinction between getting uh, addicted to an immediate intoxicant like pornography and getting addicted to exercise, which is actually um you know, an indirect addiction because it starts with pain. Yeah. Yeah. Should I do that? Should I go? Let, yeah, let's just do that, please. Okay. I think right. it'd be helpful so, for people. Okay, super. So uh, one of the most interesting findings in neuroscience in the past 100 years is that pleasure and pain are processed in the same part of the brain and they work like opposite sides of a balance. There's a part of our brain called the reward pathway. It's been conserved over millions of years of evolution and across species largely unchanged for literally eons. Um, and this is the part of our brain that allows us to reflexively approach pleasure and avoid pain, which is what has allowed us to survive through, through you know, millions of years of evolution. How does it do it? Well, imagine that in your brain, there's a balance like a teeter-totter on a kid's playground. 
when the balance tilts one way, we experience pleasure when it tilts the other way, we experience pain. But one of the overarching rules governing this balance is that it wants to remain level. It doesn't want to be tilted for very long to the side of pleasure or pain. How does the brain restore a level balance or what neuroscientists call homeostasis? It does that by tilting an equal and opposite amount to whatever the initial stimulus was before going back to a level balance. So for example, um, you know, if we do something that, that's highly pleasurable, let's say in your case, pornography, you get a tilt to the side of pleasure, right? Um, and you get a release of dopamine, the reward neurotransmitter in the pleasure um, part of the brain. But no sooner has that happened than these then the brain adapts essentially to that increased dopamine by downregulating dopamine transmission. And I imagine that as these little neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again. But remember, they like it on the balance, so they stay on until it's tipped an equal amount, uh, an opposite amount to the side of pain. That's the come down with that feeling of wanting to stay in that pleasurable space to not let it go to watch one more video or whatever it is. Now, if we wait long enough, the gremlins hop off and the balance is restored. But if we continue to expose our brain to that highly reinforcing drug and behavior over time, more and more gremlins are created and they don't go away, right? The balance remembers. So more and more of them hop on the pain side in order to try to bring it level again. That means that that initial response gets shorter and weaker, that's tolerance, but that after response gets stronger and longer. And the addicted brain is essentially the brain where we've accumulated so many gremlins on the pain side of the balance that they fill up this whole room. We've essentially changed our pain pleasure set point. Now we need our drug not to get high, but just to restore a level balance. And when we're not using, we're walking around with a balance tilted to the side of pain, experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and craving. This is why people with severe addiction will relapse even months after they've stopped using, because once those gremlins establish themselves on the pain side of the balance, they take a long time to get off. With enough abstinence and neuroplasticity, they will eventually dismount and balance will be restored. So in other words, if you think about this as a, on a graph, if you were to graph dopamine levels, right? You do something, you ingest an intoxicant, okay? You get a sudden increase and in spike in dopamine followed pretty quickly thereafter by plummeting levels, not just baseline, but actually below baseline. That's the dopamine deficit state or the balance tilted to the side of pain. And then you finally get a restoration back up to baseline levels. Now let's think about exercise. Exercise is different because exercise, the initial stimulus is pain, right? What we're doing is we're pressing on the pain side of the balance. Then those same neuroadaptation gremlins hop on the pleasure side to restore homeostasis, which tilts the balance to the side of pleasure. This is the runner's high, right? That's yeah. when our own dop dopamine, endorphins, endogenous opioids, endogenous norepinephrine are released in response to this painful or noxious stimulus. So in other words, we're getting our dopamine indirectly by doing something that's hard. If you were to map a graph of that, what you would find is over the course of exercise, there's a slow and gradual increase in dopamine rather than a spike. And then when exercise is over, dopamine levels remain elevated for hours afterwards and then go back to baseline. So there's no dopamine deficit state. 
So you might ask, well, then that sounds like the perfect solution, but you still got addicted to exercise. If we increase the quantity and potency of that painful stimulus, we can still get addicted to it because it essentially becomes like an intoxicant if we do it too much. Um, And so, you know, that's what happens if you, if you exercise so much or in such a level of intensity without any breaks in between, you do lose the resilience of the balance and you do go into withdrawal and you do experience tolerance. But on the other hand, it still requires as the initial stimulus, effortful pain. And so when you have you had that pause before exercise, because you knew that to get your dopamine from exercise, you would have to first do something that was really hard. And that's a lot harder than just grabbing for, you know, a, a, a pornographic image and masturbating. Yeah. I think you just explained it perfectly. The difference between pain and pleasure. Like I, I wanted the pleasure more than I wanted the pain, except in order for me to get to the the pleasure side of things of the exercise, I had to go through the pain. So yeah. I just had to kind of suck it up. But there was right. that, <laughs> that little bit of a moment where I was just like, nah, this sucks. I'm not, not even going to bother doing this. But it's funny because I never like now that I've sort of gotten a little bit more control over the both, both sides of my addictions, it's taken me a long time and I'm still working on those demons. The exercise now helps me inform that I don't go back to the porn addiction, which is a funny thing how I'm using what was once an addiction as now help to stop the other addiction. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's very common, by the way, you know, w- among people who have a real propensity for addiction, you know, they stop one drug and then those behaviors kind of make their way to another drug. We call that cross addiction. We see that again and again, and something that, you know, I have to warn patients about as they're going to give up their drug of choice. Be careful that you don't now, you know, give up cigarettes and start smoking pot or start smoking more pot or whatever it is. I will say that in my book, I actually recommend exercise and other hard things as a relatively healthy way to get dopamine because you're getting it indirectly. But you make a great point that even that, and I make that point in the book as well, can be taken to an extreme. Yeah. Uh, is is that possible for pretty much everything that we do in, in life? Like we can, if a person has, does every single person have that tendency to take pretty much everything to the extreme and not have that level balance? People really vary in that. And people who have the propensity or vulnerability for addiction are much more likely to do that. We used to call that the addictive personality. We really don't use that language anymore. We now just talk about somebody having the disease of addiction or having a vulnerability uh, to addiction. But I really think it's important to recognize that although there's that inter-individual variability in terms of baseline vulnerability to addiction, we now live in a world in which everything has become drugified, making it that much easier for people with even low vulnerability to the problem of addiction to become addicted. And that's essentially the point of my book, Dopamine Nation, in addition to being prescriptive around what we can do. It's making the point that Like we live in this dopamine overloaded world. If you haven't met your drug of choice yet, it's coming to a website near you. Mm -hmm. And and we're seeing that, you know, um, epidemiologically too, uh, you know, increasing rates of addiction among demographic groups that were previously insulated. For example, um, alcohol, alcohol use disorder has gone up 80% in women. It's gone up 50% in the elderly in the past 20 to 30 years. 
Um, and obviously now we're struggling with, you know, addictions that didn't even exist before social media addiction, video game addiction, uh, Bitcoin investing addiction, you know, these we've made things. And then I think too, um, it's important to acknowledge that um, it was, you know, two, three generations ago, even getting addicted to exercise was much, much harder because we hadn't drugified exercise the way we have now with rankings, uh, you know, um, apps that track us and compare us to other people, various technological um, self-measurement devices and, and like machines that like really make it a more potent drug than it was before. One of my, one of the things I talk about in the book, which is one of my like favorite things that I discovered in researching the book was that Scientists originally thought that a little metal running wheel that you put into a rat's cage was just a measure of spontaneous physical activity among mice. And they even thought it was like a marker of health. You know, if you put a, a running wheel in a cage in which there was also a lever to press cocaine, the 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 rat would be would press it less, the coat, the lever less. It would still press the lever for cocaine because that's a potent reinforcer. But if it could run on the running wheel, then it was going to do it less. So this was all kind of like, oh, this is great. You know, the running wheel is a healthy alternative. But what we found out since then is like actually the running wheel is a drug. Like some rats will run on that running wheel till they die. If you put a running wheel out in nature, Animals of many different sizes and shapes will engage and go on the running wheel, even without a food reward. So, and the running wheel is, it's made of metal. We've shaped it into a wheel. You know, it has this modern technological mechanical thing called a hub and a spoke. And, and so to me, that's fascinating because it's just a great metaphor for the ways in which even something seemingly healthy and adaptive as exercise now has these components which make it ripe for addiction. It kind of reminded me of that study with Rat Park, I think it is. Yes. Yeah, very much so like that. But it's interesting how you brought up the technology and wearing technology. Like I don't wear an Apple Watch or Fitbit, anything like that anymore, because I know what it did to me before. Like that was also responsible for me doing 40,000 steps a day yeah. most of the time, mm -hmm. looking at how many calories I'd burned. And if it wasn't above 3000, I get upset at myself. Right. It'd just be like this nasty, nasty thing. Like I was basically putting myself into the ground because I was chasing the next high, if it were like yeah. my next big score. Mm -hmm. And then when people would come up to me and say, Jay, we're doing a step competition. Like Jay steps all the time. He's going to win this. No doubt. Then I'd be just like, yeah, competition, let's go. Right. <laughs> like it, made, it made it even worse for me. So yeah. when I finally decided to ditch the Fitbit and just go completely free from any technology at all, like sure, it's still a struggle and sure, I still have that tendency to want to go buy a Fitbit, buy a smartwatch, buy all those things and track it. But now I just like, I sort of don't care anymore about it. Like I just exercise now to help me stay in balance. If it were, then I am also at the same time trying to be careful that that doesn't go out of a whack in alignment. Um, but I find the whole dopamine, um, the whole dopamine drug fascinating as well. Like, cause it is natural, right? Like it is a natural mm -hmm. thing that we do have within us. 
So is that, is it a, a kind of a flaw to have dopamine? No, I mean, dopamine, I, I like that you frame this as it's natural, right? It's, it's neither good nor bad. It's a signal. It's a chemical signal. Our brain makes dopamine and dopamine is essential for the experience of pleasure, reward, and motivation. And it may be even more important for motivation than actual pleasure. So there's this very famous experiment where they, where scientists engineered a rat to have no dopamine transmission. And they found that if they put food in the rat's mouth, the rat would eat the food and seem to get pleasure from it and swallow it. But if they put the food even a single body length away, the rat starved to death, not having enough motivation to get up and go get the food. So in other words, we need desire in order to live, right? And, you know, for most of human existence, we've lived in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger where we have to be perpetual seekers in order to survive. If you think about this pleasure pain balance, it's really, uh, you know, mother nature's genius, right? What better mechanism to keep us seeking than to say for every pleasure you get, every oasis you find, every berry bush you happen upon after walking tens of, you know, thousands of kilometers, I'm going to make sure that there's a come down afterwards so that you're off looking for the next berry bush before too long. Um, and it's a, it's a great, great mechanism, except that it's a colossal disaster in our modern ecosystem where we have every you know need uh, provided for and then some, which is essentially the message that our primitive wiring is mismatched for the modern ecosystem. So we need to find new ways of um, thinking about this problem and living in the world in order to not allow our pleasure pain balance to reflexively take over. It kind of was like talking about that in the social dilemma. I noticed like we have created these environments where more and more people are becoming addicted. People know when they do create these things to get, they want your attention, right? Especially with uh, social media, internet websites, you name it, whatever it is, technology just in general, they're fighting for your attention so they can make more money. They know all this yet. They still do it. They, just make it 10 times worse for a lot of people. And I feel like we're getting so much worse these days with young people being more addicted, like you said. Um, how do we find or help a young person in particular find that pain, pleasure balance with equal levels of equaling out their dopamine as well? And so it's not like too much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, you know, there, of course this technology is, has so many positives and is really amazing, but there is this dark underbelly. And I think, you know, the past five years or so is really the first time we have, you know, as, as societies and as nations been, been talking about the dark side. Um, you know, what I recommend in my book is this, the same kinds of interventions that I have seen work for people with addiction to drugs and alcohol, which is that it really has to start with a dopamine fast. We must abstain from our drug of choice long enough for those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off the pain side of the balance so that homeostasis or a level balance can be restored. That's really the first step. Of course, if you are at risk for life-threatening withdrawal, let's say from alcohol or opioids or benzos, you would want to do that under medical supervision. But most people can stop cold turkey without you know, having um, a life-threatening withdrawal. And that's that's really the first step. And when we first stop, you know, our balance crashes to the side of pain because we got a lot of gremlins. 
And it's really hard, you know, but if we can just hang in there for two to four weeks, in my clinical experience and my personal experience, by the time we get to a month, a homeostasis has been restored. We have a level balance. And when that happens, we're freed from the constant intrusive cravings and ruminations and desires to, to use our drug. And that's, gosh, such a good feeling. Um, we're able to enjoy more modest rewards, right? Because we have a level balance. So we can go back to enjoying simpler things. And also really importantly, we're able to see with clarity the true impact of our drug use on our lives, which is really hard to do, if not impossible, when we're in the addiction vortex. So we have to really get that distance to be able to look back. It sounds so simple. It's, it's hard to do in real life. It's not good news, uh, you know, for people, people always want something a little easier than that, but you know, it's, and what I try always say to people is like, don't frame it as you're depriving yourself, frame it as you're doing something really positive for yourself, but it's hard. It's a hard positive. Um, And then once that month is over and reward pathways are reset, then it's a matter of deciding, do we want to reintroduce this intoxicant um, back into our lives? And then if so, how to do that so that we can use in more moderation. Yeah. And I've noticed like even for myself, uh, cause it is hard and I, not many people want to do what is hard, but if you do what is hard for a period of time and it doesn't like, it gets a little bit easier as time goes on because you get better at managing those gremlins, as you call it. I love how you call them gremlins. I call them demons. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, yeah. It just becomes a little bit, easier as time goes on, but you've got to be willing to, to go through a bit of hurt along the way uh, just to get there. But if you do, then you'd be much better for it. Like I'm, I'm living proof of that. And I'm sure uh, Dr. Lemke can, can testify to that with a lot of her patients as well. So yeah. it is possible. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, just simply the project being worth doing is something that requires a conversation like what we're having, because we get so many messages in modern day culture to do whatever we can to take away our pain, to make ourselves feel good, to not experience, you know, trauma. So it's just even highlighting that, Hey, you know what, this is something that is worth doing. It's a good thing to do. Um, You can do it together with other people. It's a project worth engaging in. Mm. Why is it that, people become addicted in the first place? I know it's quite a, a broad style question because there's a lot of factors that are involved, but why is it that some people get addicted to substances versus some people get addicted to behavior? You know what? We have no idea why some people prefer one drug over another. My guess is that from an evolutionary perspective, it would make sense for mother nature to wire us differently so that we're seeking out different things so that collectively as a tribe, we manage to get all of the different things that we need. And we don't have everybody going for, you know, the red berry bush. Um, In terms of risk factors for addiction, there's a lot of work on this and risk factors can broadly be divided into three groups. At least that's how I divide them. Uh, nature, nurture, and neighborhood. Nature refers to the inborn or genetic risk factors. About 50 to 60% of the risk of becoming addicted to things like alcohol is actually inborn, whether or not you have a biological parent or grandparent with addiction, even if you're raised outside of that addictive home. So it's not just the modeling, it's actually the genes themselves. 
Um, Co-occurring mental illness is a risk factor for becoming addicted, probably because people are more likely to reach for a substance or behavior to self-medicate, but it's not real good medicine because it stops working over time and then it becomes its own medical problem. Um, In terms of nurture, we know that certain types of parenting and upbringings are protective and others are harmful. If you have parents who are with whom you have good attachment, uh, they know where you are and what you're doing. Uh, that's actually protective um, for not developing addiction. On the other hand, if you have a history of trauma growing up, if you have a very conflicted relationship, if you have very free reign parents who don't really know where you are or what you're doing, and who explicitly or implicitly condone substance use, those folks are at greater risk of becoming addicted. And then finally, neighborhood. Neighborhood speaks to, you know, the environmental context. One of the biggest risk factors for becoming addicted, which is often underplayed, is simple access. If you have access to a drug, you are more likely to use it, and you're more likely to use it more often, and quantity and frequency really matter. Um, And the more you use it, and, and the more often you use it, the more likely you are to get addicted. And this is really what Dopamine Nation is all about, that we've all become vulnerable to the problem of addiction because we're living in an environment where we're literally swimming in dopaminergic type of stimuli. Speaking about vulnerability, I wanted to ask you when was, or when in your life has been the most vulnerable for yourself or when was the most vulnerable moment writing Dopamine Nation? Mm. So, you know, in the book, I do talk about the way that I became addicted to romance novels. It started with the Twilight Saga. That was my gateway drug. And it progressed to Fifty Shades of Grey. That was my bottom. No pun intended. Um, And and it it went over the course of a couple of years. I didn't see it as it was happening. um, But I had, you know, some, some particular moments, which I describe in the book, where I realized, oh, my goodness, this is really a problem. And that was really, um, I, I was nervous about sharing that, you know, as a faculty person and a psychiatrist and all that. I thought, wow, people, why should I really be sharing this with folks? But I felt compelled to do it mainly because I was sharing my patient stories with their permission, of course. Everything in the book is true. Only the names are changed. And they'd given me permission to share their stories, which was so brave of them, you know, and so giving. So I thought, wow, I I can't really ask them to do that and not be willing to share something of myself. So that's, that's why, that's why I shared it. And that was scary, but people have really been so appreciative of uh, my disclosure. And that's been really nice. I'm super appreciative of it as well, because it shows me that, Hey, I'm not alone. Right. Uh, We all go through these sorts of things but it kind of brings up the the idea of shame. And, and my question to you is why out of all the drugs, out of all the addictions that people go through, why is pornography addiction by far in my experience and from what I've heard from many other people, why is that by far the worst in terms of shame? Great question. I think, um, well, first of all, it's, it's, um, you know, pornography addiction is sort of on a spectrum of what we call sex addictions, which can involve compulsive masturbation, actual sex with other people, you know, in the form of hookups, um, pornography or not pornography, but this kind of compulsive pursuit and engagement, uh, usually involving, you know, orgasm as the, the sort of, uh, sort of last piece of the drug. And, um, 
it's incredibly shameful at this particular juncture in history, I think, especially for men, because um, there's such complexity now in terms of um, sexual relations, issues of consent, issues of sexual assault, um, what defines that, um, you know, who said what, where, when. Um, and I think that that the result is, is that men in particular um, feel like monsters if they admit to um, compulsive use of, of masturbation or other sexual gratification. And in, in many instances, they may be actually perceived as monsters because people really don't appreciate that it's a drug just like alcohol and cocaine and cannabis are drugs. It um, follows the exact same trajectory, often has on some level nothing to do with sex at all. It sort of has to do with, you know, self-soothing, coping, maladaptive coping, um, escape, numbing, self-medication. Um, so I think that makes it really hard to come forward and sort of admit to this problem. And it's also, I think, an especially difficult problem to tackle because all it really requires at the end of the day is your imagination and your own body, which is not something you can sever yourself from, right? Unlike alcohol, you can get alcohol out of the house, right? You can't get your own body out of the house. So, um, so I think these process addictions are, are difficult to overcome come for that reason as well. Yeah, I noticed for me, because I grew up in a conservative Christian household, so there's a lot of restrictions. There's a lot of, I guess, if we were to be addicted to sexual sin, they call it, yeah. immorality, there would be this fear, this really nasty fear if you did get caught. So that's what happened to me. I was, I wanted to be a good kid, good Christian kid. I didn't want to tell anyone that I had this secret in the past, because you know what would people think of me if Jay the Goody Two Shoes <laughs> uh, was addicted to this sinful thing, um, and for it stopped me for for many 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 years, and it like it ruined relationships, it ruined mm -hmm. so many things in my life, and it brought forth more unhealthy addictions as a result. So it's just like it's unhealthy in a sense to put people to shame for their experiences, especially with sexual addictions. Um, but now I'm like, I'm okay with, with sharing what I went through because I hope yeah. that it helps someone else. Um, yeah. It is ashamed. They shouldn't be. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's okay to share. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I thought, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it sounds like you've done a lot of work, both in terms of getting into recovery uh, from your, uh, you know, pornography addiction, but also just kind of processing your experience such that you are comfortable sharing it, um, which is really, that's a whole other piece of it, right? Where we have to get to a certain comfort level with ourselves um, often to be able to widely, at least to be able to widely share it. Um, and, you know, I think you're right. It's that that shame. Well, I, I talk about in the book the difference between pro-social shame and um, this kind of harmful or destructive shame. And when shame um, drives us to continue to lie and pretend to be one thing, and it's very destructive and it perpetuates the addiction. But when um, we're honest with others and that honesty is received in a compassionate way and we're given a pathway for making amends, we will still experience shame in admitting these, you know, behaviors, 
but um, but it, it's shame that's very pro-social because it helps us activate, you know, to to get into recovery. And then it's the not wanting to repeat the shameful experience that can be very helpful in keeping us in in recovery and not re-engaging in those behaviors. Because if we have a policy with ourselves and our loved ones or community of knowing that we have to tell people that we we did it again, that's a huge deterrent to doing it again. Yeah. What if someone was to, in fact, relapse and go back down those dangerous paths again? How do we help them recover and, and come back to finding that balance again? Yeah, well, the thing about relapse is your relapse will never take away the time of abstinence that you had. If you if you've had a period of abstinence, you can tuck that in your pocket and keep it forever. It's yours. You can always go back to that as a touchstone. And what happens in recovery, um, and this is based on the work of one of my colleagues, Edie Sullivan, is that it's probably true that addiction permanently damages parts of our brains and that we can't undo some of that damage. But recovery allows us to create new neural networks that bypass and go around those damaged areas. So once you created those new neural networks, sort of like uh, wheelbarrow grooves in the mud, they never go away. So you can always access that again. And I think that's important because that that's, gives people hope. And although uh, it's it's true that it's much easier to stay sober than to get sober, yeah. um, even if you've relapsed, you can get sober again. You can do it again. And just always keep that in mind. And it starts with behaviors, really. You know, a lot of times patients will say, well, you know, I don't, I don't feel like doing this or I don't feel like doing that. And I'll say, you know, that's what early recovery is all about. We have to act opposite to what we want. We have to, which is really, again, counterculture, because we're so often to dial into your feelings, know what they are, let them inform what, but really what, what happens in early recovery is like, nope, don't do that. You know, you can be aware, but you cannot react to what your brain is telling you to do. Cause your brain is a bunch of gremlins on the pain side of your balance, jumping up and down going, come on, Jay, let's go. Right. So you have to ignore those guys. Yep. <laughs> and uh, I like how you mentioned before, you know, being honest with yourself because I always say you can lie to all your friends and your family for as long as possible. And you can even try to lie to yourself, but it always comes back to yeah. you, you're living a lie and that lie will eventually collapse and crumble. And when it does, it's so much more painful. So it's better to be open, honest and transparent with yourself first and then work towards being open and honest with those other people you may have hurt or those ones that you love, trust, and respect to actually open up first with them and then get to the place where you're comfortable with opening up to the rest of the world. I know not everyone's like me and I was petrified the first time I shared mm -hmm. that I was addicted to this and that, but I noticed that it was okay ultimately yeah. at the end of the day. So I thought I would, I would share that. Um, Dr. Lemke, and, and I've got a couple more questions for you, if you don't mind. I'm really enjoying yeah. the conversation. Uh, I know it's wide ranging. <laughs> That's great. I love yeah. it. But you've got this other book that I mentioned at the very beginning, uh, Drug Dealer MD. And I'm curious about, because I've been looking at uh, the opioid crisis, which I think started in the 90s and it's still going on to some extent today, which is rather sad. The Sacklers, which is another topic of conversation altogether. But 
what was your research in, and why was uh, OxyContin, for example, why was the opioid crisis such a big crisis in the first place? How did that actually really begin? I know it's a huge question, but. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm happy to answer it. So, and this is basically what my book, Drug Dealer MD, is about, tries to pick apart what, what are the origins of this crisis? How did we get here? And really, it began with a huge paradigm shift in medicine in the United States, where we went from using opioids very sparingly for extreme pain or end of life pain to using opioids really for any kind of pain condition, anybody who walked in the door and said, said I'm in pain. And that paradigm shift was really brought about fundamentally by the influence of the pharmaceutical opioid industry, not just Purdue, but many other players um, who perpetuated certain myths about opioids and the treatment of chronic pain. And those myths were things like, you know what, if you're a doctor prescribing to a patient who has real pain, there's an infinitesimally small chance that they'll get addicted because somehow there's some kind of magic halo effect where they can't get addicted to an opioid prescribed for pain. That turns out to be totally untrue. About one in four individuals with serious chronic pain who gets an opioid from a doctor will develop some kind of opioid use problem. One in four, one in four, and one in 10 will develop a severe addiction. So that's not true. The other big myth that was perpetuated is that opioids are good treatment for chronic pain. It turns out there's no reliable evidence to show that opioids work when taken long-term for more than three months. Opioids are very effective for some people short-term. So you get in a car crash, you have a surgery, you've got two weeks to live. Most of us would want to have access to opioids. But when you start giving opioids every single day for very long periods of time, and especially at higher and higher doses, which is what was happening, then you're going to multiply the risk of addiction, the risk of overdose, and it stops working for pain and can even make pain worse. So these were just some of you know, the myths that were perpetuated. And then on top of it, we have a culture in the United States, which basically says, <clears throat> if you're in pain, your doctor's not doing a good job. You, know, you go in there and complain because pain is bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, it's un- those are unrealistic expectations. Then you combine that with a healthcare system, which monetizes essentially repeat encounters with doctors um, as a way, you know, for the medical industry to flourish. And you've got kind of this, this nexus of, of factors that made the opioid epidemic um, happen. You know, uh, prescribing rates in this country quadrupled between 1999 and 2012. And there was a commensurate lockstep quadrupling of opioid overdose deaths and opioid addiction rate. So it's really very clear as prescribing went up, addiction went up and deaths went up. And it was hard for, I guess, lawyers and those sorts of people that did notice a problem to try and do something about it, to try and bring it down. Cause you got big pharma as a part of it. And, you know, a lot of people didn't want to get off the drugs and it was extremely hard to get off Oxycontin, for example, and so many others. Uh, yeah, that's right. The marketing was just absolutely insane. I think they were talking about how only less than 1% get addicted to the drug, that's which right. came from, what was it? Just a, a journal article, like a one, one line, one sentence sort of thing. 
Yeah. So this is the Porter and Jick letter to the editor. It wasn't even an article. It was a letter to the editor at the end of the New England Journal published in 1980, um, which became sort of this talking point for, you know, advertising this uh, putative low risk, which, you know, is is not in fact a low risk. So where are we in terms of the opioid crisis today? Are we still in that opioid crisis or is it getting, getting better today? Well, I mean, there's good news and bad news. The good news is that starting in 2012, shortly after the CDC declared that we were in the midst of an opioid epidemic due to opioid overprescribing, prescribing rates started to go down and have gone down by about 30 to 50% in the United States. There's a lot of geographic variation, but overall prescribing has gone down. So that's the good news. And the bad news is that opioid overdose deaths have um, continued to increase. And that's mainly because of the um, increase in the use of illicit or illegal opioids like heroin and illicitly manufactured fentanyl. Um, And fentanyl is 50 to 100 times more potent than um, heroin. So it's an incredibly lethal drug and now it's infiltrated the market. It's easily available. It's now in counterfeit pills. So people don't necessarily even know that they're um, using it and... um, so we're, we're sadly in a place where the drug overdose death problem has increased, but fortunately, the overall supply of prescription opioids is going down. Mm. In your opinion, Dr. Lemke, this may be a crazy question, but no, <laughs> is, it's okay. what, what in your opinion is the worst addiction you've ever seen or treated? Um, you know, I, I, I can't say they're like, there's one worse addiction than another. Every story is unique. Um, There's enormous suffering as a result of addiction, Uh, but there's also enormous uh, reason for hope. People get better. I mean, this is one of the things that I think the average person doesn't realize that we have about a 50% response rate, um, which is on par with the response rates for treating major depressive disorder. So people get into recovery, many of them into long-term recovery, and their lives are transformed for the better, along with the lives of people who live with them and care about them. So, um, you know, lots of suffering, lots of sad things, but lots and lots of reason for hope. I've got a <laughs> this question. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask it, but I've seen uh, a couple of videos of people with weird addictions, like uh-huh. one person eating rocks, one person eating sand. Uh, and that is like, I guess it's a very rare kind of form of addiction. Uh, I don't know if you're able to help explain why. Yeah, I've never right? seen anything like that. You know, I've never seen anybody like addicted to rocks or to sand. I don't know what that is. Part of me wonders if that's a way to get social media attention um, or maybe the manifestation of some other kind of mental illness. I don't know, but hard for me to really conceptualize that but you know who knows so maybe that'll be my next case <laughs> you <laughs> never was, know it you was know? Just so strange i'm watching it the other day yeah i bet and i was like oh, okay <laughs> um two final questions for you dr lemke if that's okay with you your new book yeah. dopamine nation uh what do you hope for people to get out of this book the most when they do read it and pick up a copy of it Yeah, so my hope is that people will be able to apply the basic neuroscience of pleasure and pain to understand why we compulsively overconsume, and also uh, to um, have the stories of the many stories that I include there of my patients and my own story 
kind of provide a, a guide or a map for getting into recovery. Um, you know, there are sort of, I have these lessons at the end, lessons of the balance. And so it's a very practical kind of um, book. It's not just about the problem. It's also about the solution. Well, I for one can't wait to finish it. <laughs> um, <hopefully laughs> Once you fun. unglue the pages. Yes. <laughs> or when my new copy arrives, but um, yeah. where do you want people to connect with you, Dr. Lemke? And before yeah. I ask you the final question. Yeah. I mean, the best way to connect with me is really to read the book. There's a lot of me in there. And then also the book has a website, dopamination.com, where there are other resources listed. I'll make sure everyone knows where to get a copy of that. But my final okay. question for you, this is my all time favorite question. I ask yeah. everyone at the end of all my conversations, it is a hypothetical one, but I yeah. want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for the sake of argument, but they've been able to get it and show it to you on your hundredth birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Ah, I guess I would want that film to show um, that the ideas that I have, that I have had, which seemed crazy initially, uh, proved to be not that crazy after all. It's a perfect send-off message. Dr. Lemke, <laughs> thank you so much for your amazing work. It has helped millions, if not th hundreds of thousands of people around the world, well, including myself. So thank you so much for, for being willing and vulnerable enough to share the things that you do share uh, and for continu continuing to do the research and, and to do the hard things, <laughs> I yeah. guess, as well. But just well, you, you too. You. you too. Right back at you. I, I accept that. Thank you. <laughs> but I really enjoy this conversation. So thank you so much for your time. And thank you for joining me today on the Storybox podcast. Thank you so much. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guests today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the Storybox, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.